Well, it is good to be around God's Word again. I heard that last week, our Liam, who's five, and they were discussing in kids' work what their dads do for a living. And so Milo said, oh, my dad is an electrician. I thought, that's excellent. Liam said, oh, my dad does nothing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, son. So if he's listening out there, this is what I do for a living. Okay, just... So we're clear. (laughs) Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17. Last week we looked at what it is to to be together in life. And this week I want us to look at what it is to be together in mission. You know, the book of Acts really is an incredible story of the unstoppable gospel going forward. That's what it's all about, the book of Acts. So in chapter 1, verse 8... We see Jesus commissioning his young church to go and take the gospel out. Explains to them that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in power. And when he does, I want you to brandish the gospel and take it out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. Which in that generation was Rome. That was the ends of the known earth. And all the way through the book of Acts, that's what's happening. The gospel is going forward. It's unstoppable. Even though Satan seeks to stop it every step of the way, the gospel continues to go forward every step of the way. And Acts 29, as we know, is in so many ways still being written by us. The gospel is still going forward. And right in the middle of the book of Acts, Luke treats us to an inside view of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. He's been to Thessalonica. He's been to Berea. He's been to Philippi, and as we catch up with him here in Acts chapter 17, he's just about to enter the great city of Athens. You know, he's actually right here, meant to be on holiday. He's actually waiting for Timothy and Silas before they head into Corinth, and they decided, listen, just have a bit of a break in Athens, because Paul had been attempted to be killed numerous times already, and the whole point was, listen, all these people from Thessalonica have been tra- tracing you around all the different cities trying to kill you. Just hang out in Athens for a bit and wait, calm down, and we'll meet you there, and then we'll go to Corinth. But Paul doesn't do rest well. Paul wants the gospel to go forward in whatever city he's in. So let's catch up with him here in verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, and here's what happens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, in all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not too far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabigite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, Lord, I do pray, would it pierce us afresh today? Would we hear your voice afresh today? Throughout this entirety of this Together series, would we hear your voice speaking to our souls and bringing direction to us as a church? Lord, help us to be solvents. Help us to be like Paul. Help us to be together in mission. And would we be refreshed in this and inspired in this and changed in this as your word does its work? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some lessons in life that you're never, ever going to forget. And I have many of those lessons inscribed in my mind. I remember when I started high school, seventh, my year seven, it was actually called first year back then, when I went to secondary school, so you're in first year, and I was in 1B. That was my class name, 1B. And I remember numerous lessons when I started school that I will never forget. And so, for example, my very first biology lesson, it was with this guy called Mr. Searle. And he was the most frightening person I've ever met in my life. I was a small kid, really skinny kid. And I remember we were just lining up and he came out of his office and said, One me, line up against the wall. And already I'm afraid. I'm feeling like I'm being naughty and I haven't even done anything yet. And so we line up along the wall and then he comes out of his office with a javelin. He is a biology teacher, but he comes out of the office with a javelin and says, one B, enter into the room. So we enter into the room, and as soon as we're sitting down, and I am wetting myself as a small child, he takes this javelin, and he just picks it up and whacks it against this massive blackboard and goes, right, let's make a start. I was terrified. I'll never forget that lesson for the rest of my life. We learned photosynthesis. If you want to find out about photosynthesis, I remember all the details because I listened with fresh passion and did every biology lesson. I was scared stiff. I remember likewise studying in chemistry. We didn't have a scary teacher. He was a really nice teacher, Dr. Gorton. And I remember his gathering us over by this machine where it just, you know, it sucks out all the vapors and he gathered us around this machine. And he said, today I'm going to teach you how to make a volcano. And I'm thinking... This is great. I like chemistry. And he pours out this stuff. I don't even know what it was. And he lights it. And all of a sudden, this massive volcano erupts in this machine. I'm just thinking, this is great. Same happened when we started CDT, Craft Design and Technology. And the teacher said, listen, we're going to make a circuit board today. And I thought, oh, that's probably not riveting. Um, but he, he gave us these little pieces of plastic with metal on one side, plastic on the other. And he got us to cut out little pieces of stickers. And we put them on the metal in different shapes. And then by the end, we put them in this acid machine. And the acid took the metal away, apart from the areas with the stickers. It was amazing. It was life-changing. And so we basically did all this stuff, and we learned how to make circuit boards. It was great. You know, even at A-level, six years later, I did craft design technology and, and chemistry. I didn't do biology. I was too afraid of that. But there's certain lessons that, listen, I just remembered for the rest of my life, and I'm going to remember until my dying breath. There are some lessons that we will never forget in our lives. And there's other lessons in life that we don't want to forget, that we need to remember, that are lessons that can change our lives. And that's what we have right here in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Because right here, what we have written to us by Luke is a wonderful lesson on soul winning. He's using Paul as an illustration to help us see this is what it looks like to win souls. These are some of the things that we need to embody in our lives if we're serious about actually winning souls. And it's a lesson then I think we need to remember and take on board because it can change our lives. You see, for all of us, if we're honest as Christians, it's not hard to realize what we're called to do, is it? We all know it. Matthew 28 verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Every Christian instinctively knows. He's talking there to the disciples, but he's talking to the disciples as they represent Christianity. We're all called to make disciples of all nations. God's given us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us the gift of the gospel, and we're to brandish to the gospel and take the gospel out and make nations come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Paul says it in Romans 10, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We instinctively know who he's addressing there, don't we? He's addressing us. His premise is everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call upon the one in whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless we go and tell them? And how are we going to go tell them unless we're sent? And he's echoing there John 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As Christians, I think we all instinctively know we're called to brandish the gospel and take it out. That's the calling we have on our lives. None of us really question that. And yet as Christians, I think, although we can see it, it's hard to live it out, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's difficult. There are challenges within what it means to really brandish the gospel and take it out and try and seek to win our friends and family and colleagues of the Lord. It's, it's difficult. And that's why for me then I'm so grateful for Acts chapter 17 because what we have here in Acts chapter 17 is a moment where we as Christians are going to be mentored by the Apostle Paul himself. That's the type of teacher I want when it comes to winning souls. He's just a guy. He's not the fourth person of the Trinity, okay? He's just a guy. He's a guy like you, a guy like me. But he's a guy that was really good at winning souls. He understood what it took to see people turn to Jesus Christ and proclaim them as their Lord and Savior. And so I'm inspired by this work. It, it helps us. But I'm also inspired by this lesson on soul winning that he gives us is because, all honesty, Athens, where Paul is... It's just like Sydney. You see, so many other places in Acts, it's full of Jews. It's full of people that you can talk about the Old Testament and they all get it. But not so in Athens. Athens isn't filled with Jews and not even that filled with God-fearers. It's filled with people that don't know the Lord, don't know much at all. And Athens really is then a city just like Sydney. You see, Athens, just like Sydney, is a city full of worshippers. Verse 16 there we discover that it is a city full of idols. That's true. 10,000 people lived in Athens, but there were 30,000 idols in Athens. 30,000 statues or altars or temples that lined the streets. One historian said in Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was a man. One commentator commented on that and said, indeed, that's true. Athens was a forest of idols. People in Athens worshipped idols. They believed these false gods, they believed these things could bring them profound happiness. And so if they just worshipped these idols enough, they'd be profoundly happy, they would be content, their life would be complete, they would have everything they want, they would be able to live out their lives in joy and satisfaction and contentment and in profound happiness. And so they worshipped numerous, numerous, numerous idols. Sydney's like that. It's not a forest of idols, as in you can't see them. There's not lots of temples everywhere. There's not lots of altars there. But I submit to you in all honesty, Sydney is a city of idols. People giving themselves to worshipping different things, which they think, if I just worship this enough, I'll be profoundly happy, profoundly content, and profoundly satisfied with my life. And so people worship relationships. People worship sex. People worship having the best house they can possibly get. People worship money. People worship career. People worship which private school they manage to send their kids to. People worship intellectualism. If we could just get more and more smarter. I'm going to be happy if I can just do that. People worship family. If I could just be the best dad in the world, I'll be profoundly happy. It's everything I need. 
There are so many things that in our city people worship as idols, falsely believing that if I can just give myself enough to this thing, I'll be profoundly happy. Athens was like that. Athens also, just like Sydney, is a city full of pluralists. Pluralism may or may not be something that you consider much or understand that well, but listen, pluralism, just in headline, is the idea that every religion and every worldview and every belief system is of equal value. It's this unwritten idea that every religion, every worldview, every belief is ultimately right. Everybody should just be correct. That's pluralism. Okay, let's keep everybody on the same page. So you want to you worship Allah? Okay. You want to worship Buddha? Okay. You want to worship Jesus? That's fine. Everybody's right. Hey, let's let everybody be right. You think sexual intimacy should be kept for marriage? It should be between man and a woman? Well, I think sexual intimacy should be between men and a man. What's marriage got to do with anything? And let everybody be right, right? Let's just let everybody be right. Who is anybody else to say that you're wrong in any shape or form? Let's let everybody be right in every way. So whatever religion you have, whatever worldview you have, whatever premise you have, in every single way, let's let everybody right and live happily ever after. That's pluralism, the idea that there is no ultimate truth. And so what you find, I think, in Athens is this is the case. In verse 21, it says they love to tell and hear of something new. Why is that? It's because they love pluralism. Hey, give us another idea. That sounds great. It's totally different than what this guy said, but hey, you're both right. Welcome to Athens. Sydney's exactly the same. You know, you can be sharing the gospel with people, And they're fine. Oh, you believe in Jesus? That's great. They're fine with everything. Until you say, you know what? It's not just that I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the only way to salvation. Whoa! What do you mean? How arrogant is that? You're so exclusive. Hey, I believe marriage should be between a man and a woman for the glory of the Lord. That's great. Well done. So therefore, I believe anything else is wrong. Whoa! You bigot. You jerk. How dare you say that? Sydney's just like Athens. That's exactly what Paul's dealing with. It's a city that is full of worshippers, looking at their false idols, thinking if we just worship these enough, we'll be profoundly happy. And one of the profound things about Athens is it was profoundly pluralistic. Let's let everybody be right. Let's let everybody tell what they think. Let's hear everybody out. And hey, let's just live as one big family. Let's ensure that no one is ever wrong. Well, that's what I like about Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts chapter 17, we don't just have a lesson on soul winning, but we have a lesson on soul winning that we can be equipped by because it's the Apostle Paul. We're being mentored by one of the best here. And we're being mentored in such a way, into such a city, that we can relate to this. Because Athens is just like home. Athens is just like home. Sydney. So there's three things we get to learn from this text. Three things about soul winnings. Three things that I want us to take to our hearts, that I want us to apply to who we are if we really want to win souls. And here's the first. Number one, the soul winner cares. Look with me at verse 16 again. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked. In the NIV, I think it actually says it better. He says he he was greatly distressed in spirit as he saw Athens. You know, where he's talking about the spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's talking about him, his spirit, who he is. He's going around Athens and he's gutted for them. He's really upset He's grieved and distressed by what he sees, just like with Jesus in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus encounters the people and city of Jerusalem and then sees their challenges and weeps. That's what the Apostle Paul is like with Athens. He walks in and he suffers great distress of soul for the lost. Why? Because he cares, because he's bothered. And so as he walks around Athens, he doesn't just see the architecture, he doesn't see the statues, he doesn't see the temples. He sees people. 
and he sees people that are dressed in their orange jumpsuits, destined for hell. And he sees how they're already worshipping idols that they think are going to bring them happiness, but how none of them will and how lost they are. And his spirit is provoked. He's distressed for them and upset with them and feels sorry for them. Listen, my friends, we must understand if we're going to be soul winners, then like Paul, we've got to care. Because that's what soul winners do. Soul winners care. Soul winners see people in the midst of what they're going through, and they don't walk into Sydney and just think, this is awesome, the opera bar is great, the bridge is great, the harbour's bridge is great. Oh, I don't like the traffic. The traffic's really awful. They don't care about those things. They see people. And they're aware that in heaven or in hell, none of what we see is going to matter. But what happens to that person matters in every way. Soul winners care. One of the people that I think excels in this, and and a lady I thank God for, is my wife. Because I think my wife, my wife cares. It's one of the things I found attractive about her many years ago. I used to work for a company called Admiral Car Insurance. I used to um, tell people, help people learn how to sell car insurance. I used to help them build teams around car insurance. And there was one time I was finishing up at work one night, it was about 7 o'clock at night, and Emma was meeting me. Emma was only 16 then, I was 20, just in case my daughter's listening to this, you will not be dating anybody when you're 16, but <laughs> in my day it was very different. Um, and so I was finishing up at work, and I remember coming downstairs, coming down the lift, I was on the 21st floor, coming down the lift, come out, and I noticed, I noticed Emma's there, and she's waiting for me, and she's holding this McDonald's, and she's crying, and you think, I don't think I've done anything. I'm not sure that I've upset her in any way. And it's kind of to get me a McDonald's. But and, and I walked up to her and said, hey, what's, what's the matter? What, what's up? And she said, oh, um, when I was going from the train to, to meet you, um, I saw this homeless guy, and he just looked so hungry. And so I went to McDonald's, and I, I bought him this McDonald's, but then I went back, and he was gone, and I tried to find him, and I couldn't find him. And Would you help me find him? And I remember just thinking then, would you marry me? (laughs) I remember thinking then, you know, if I can marry this woman, then I'll be a really lucky guy. And I never changed my opinion. I think one of the reasons why my wife excels in evangelism from my perspective is because she cares. She's bothered about people. She's willing to walk across the room and engage people in the midst of what they're walking through. And I've seen her display compassion and care many times, which makes me the richest man in the world, but also makes me consider that when I grow up, I want to be like her. We need to care if we're going to win souls. John Rice says it this way in The Soul Winner's Fire. He says, Many have the impression that the best man or woman is the best soul winner, that the Christian who has the highest moral standards pays his debts, avoids worldliness, attends church, tithes, etc., will automatically be the best soul winner. But that is not true. If it were true, then every Pharisee would have been a wonderful soul winner. What a great point. But they were not. And many a Christian today prays, reads his Bible, attends church, and carefully watches his daily life, yet never wins a soul. That is tragic. But without doubt, true. How often in revivals, a good sister or a brother rises to testify and says, I want to live such a goodly life that sinners will see my daily walk and be saved. The fact is, their living a godly life does, win, does not win sinners to Christ. That is not the way God is appointed to get sinners saved. Living, living a godly life is important, vitally important for the one who would be a soul winner, but, listen, but that first condition of soul winning, divinely appointed, is this. That in love, they get up and go after sinners. Soul winners care. Soul winners slow their lives down enough to say, hey, how are you going? Tell me about yourself. I want to befriend you. I want to love you. It's what we see here with Paul. He goes into Athens and he is distressed in his spirit. 
because he's aware of where these people are heading. And he feels for them. So he's not taken in by the architecture of the temples or the statues. He's taken in by the people. And he's motivated to care. He's motivated to love them. Listen, my friends, just by way of pastoral care and help to you this morning, what do you do then if your hearts are not moved towards the lost? What do you do if, in all honesty, like Brendan wonderfully shared this morning, was used by the Lord, what do you do if, you know, I get the point, but I just don't care. I struggle to care for people. Well, listen, I've got a couple of ideas for you that I hope will help you. If your hearts are not moved towards the lost, then number one, three things. Number one, study the doctrine of God's wrath and hell. Take your time to patiently and deliberately study the doctrine of God's wrath and hell. This to what R.C. Sproul says about hell, the reality of where people will go outside of Christ. He says, We have often heard statements such as, War is hell, or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. For there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. Listen, biblically defined, the destination of all those who die failing to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the reality of what the Bible teaches is that hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God. A punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. If you're not affected towards the lost, begin by studying this word and examining what hell is. I think it's something we don't do much. You know, in the United Kingdom, one of the reasons why you'd have a church steeple and then have graveyards around it wasn't just so it can be really pretty when people get older. The point was they wanted people when they came to church to walk past dead people and to be aware this is where you're going. This is the reality of your life. Now we push all that to the side and we barely come into contact with it, particularly if you're younger. In that generation, it was important. They wanted people weekly remembering you are going to die. And what are you going to do? What are you about? If you find yourself unmoved towards the lost, begin by studying the doctrines of God's wrath and hell. Wayne Grudem's book, um, Systematic Theology, would be one of my primary texts on all this stuff. Get it and read it. Number two, regularly rehearse your testimony. Regularly rehearse it. Because here's what you'll find. Your testimony will all look different to everybody else's, but here's something you'll find in there. Somebody, somewhere, has told you the gospel whether that be a parent or a colleague or a friend, somebody at some point has bothered to communicate to you, invited you to something or told you about Jesus. Listen, as you rehearse the gospel, here's the question. Where would you be if they hadn't done that? And rehearse it and consider it. Because where would you be? We have the opportunity to be that for somebody else now. But rehearsing your own mind, where would you be if people were too afraid to talk to you, or too afraid to invite you, or too afraid to talk the gospel to you? And number three, cry out to God for grace in this area, which is what Brendan brought for us earlier on. Friends, if you're finding your cold to the lost, then ask God for help. Hebrews 4 tells us that when we're weak, we can go to him. We can approach the throne of grace in our time of need and ask for help. And he will do that for us. The same Holy Spirit that's in Paul, which is causing his spirit to be so tender, lives in your life as well. And as you ask the Lord for help, Lord, help me to see these people with your eyes. Help me to understand their destiny. Help me to show compassion on them in a way that you clearly have to me. 
It'll change the way you feel. It'll change the way you think about mission. My friend, the soul winner cares. That's not all they do. Number two, the soul winner proclaims. Look with me at verses 17 through 20. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. See, Paul's heart for Athens didn't just stop with caring for them. He didn't just walk in and find, I am so distressed of soul. Oh, well. He was distressed of soul, but that did not conclude with care. That culminated in proclamation. It culminated in him sharing the gospel with people. Why? Because he knew and knows it is only the gospel that has the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He knew if I can get the gospel in their hands. This is a message that is powerful, which is dunamis, which is the Greek word for power, dynamite. It is dynamite in people's hands. It can change people's lives in a moment. And so he goes into Athens in care and he begins to share the gospel with anybody who will listen. The God-fearing Greeks and the Jews in the synagogues, he wants to tell them about Christ and him crucified. The street variety pagans that he's meeting in the marketplace. Listen, I want to tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about this man who changed my life. The intellectual philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Hey, I want to tell you guys as well. Anybody who will listen, let me tell you about the God that you're actually looking for. He wants to share the gospel with whoever he can. And so he does. And in response, some of them start calling him a babbler. Literally a seed picker. They had this idea that you're a, you're, you're a babbler. You just pick these seeds from in your own brain. They don't even make sense. You're probably making this up. You're babbling on about it. But hey, we're Athens, so we like to tell and hear of something new. So let us take you to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the place that took its name from Ares Hill or Mars Hill, which became known in, in the Roman world. It was a large, rocky outcrop located in the city of Athens. And the Areopagus was the home of the Areopagus Council. And the Areopagus Council was a large group of leading philosophers who would have considered themselves really the, the gatekeepers of religion and worldview in, in Athens. So if you want to start preaching this stuff, if you're going to get your own idol, you know, it's not complicated, but you come through us. So they consider themselves really the custodians of worldview and religion in Athens. And they start encouraging Paul, hey, tell them, tell them all about what you're saying. So he does, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. You know, he takes his time to help them see. He wants to engage with them. He wants to minister to their culture. And so he says, listen, I've been checking it out. And I came across this statue that says, to the unknown God. To be honest, Athens, you don't know what this is all about at all. So let me tell you about the one true God. Let me tell you about him. And that's what he does from verses 24 through 31. He unpacks the glorious gospel with them. He tells them about how there is one God, one creator, one sustainer, one provider of all. One who did everything and built everything and knitted them together in their mother's womb. How there is a judgment to come. How a time has been appointed where each man and woman will have to give an account for their lives before the one who created them and before the one in whom they're meant to find their joy and satisfaction but whom they've rejected. 
how there is a time appointed when each man and woman in this city will stand and give an account before the King of kings and Lord of lords and how it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet he tells them about one Savior, Jesus Christ, one who came to take away the sin of the world, one who in grace came after them, who made it possible for salvation to be theirs. And if they will just repent and turn from their idols that are everywhere and put their faith in Jesus Christ, then they will be saved. Isn't it wonderful? Paul is full on as he walks into Athens, motivated by care and love for them, sharing the gospel with anybody he can. He's not just saying, hey, can I try and pretend to be really Christian? Maybe people will be affected by it. No, he's saying, this, this is good, but not actually going to change people's lives that much. What is going to change people's lives is the gospel. And so let me tell you about a man who changed my life. Let me tell you about a man who saved my life. Paul knows himself through his road to Damascus conversion, how he went from Christian persecutor to Christian proclaimer. He knows if I can get saved through the gospel, anybody can. And so he is fearlessly proclaiming it to anybody who will listen. One-on-one in the marketplace, in groups, I don't care. I just want to tell people about the man who changed my life. See, for the Apostle Paul, He understood that whoever the people and whatever the city, the gospel has the power to save. And so whoever the people and whatever the city, he wanted to tell people about Jesus. He knew the gospel can change your life. And I want it to change your life. Because you guys don't realize the situation you're in. I I want you to get this. Please get this. That was his disposition. That was his heart. He realized their situation and in love wanted to share with them a story that he knew could change their lives. So to anybody who would listen, he wanted to tell them the gospel. Whatever the people, whatever the city, he knew the gospel has the power to save. And my friends, I want to encourage you, if we're serious about winning souls, if we truly want to win souls for Christ, then we must do exactly the same There's no plan B. You know, just putting on nice events, that's great. The Mormons do that. That's not causing people to go, oh, wow, I want to become a Christian. You're so nice. Listen, you you guys are really nice people. There's lots of nice people in the world. There's lots of nicer people than you. We can't nice people in. The thing that changes people's lives is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, faithfully proclaimed and faithfully shared, one-on-one and in groups wherever we can with people. You know, I think when we hear that, we can suffer various temptations, can't we? I mean, one of the things I love about introducing Jesus is that it's a course where people are going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear this old, old story, the story that changes people's lives. And that's why I want to invite people to come on it. And yet, in the midst of being all things to all men, so that by all means we may win some, which is the Apostle Paul's philosophy, not everybody's going to come. So we're going to have to be prepared to share the gospel ourselves as well, to take that opportunity in our lunchtime, to take that opportunity over dinner with somebody, to say, can I, tell, can I just tell you, this is why I go to church every week. Can I tell you why? Well, this is why I go to church every week, because Jesus Christ changed my life. And you start telling them the gospel. Listen, I believe there was one God and one creator. And we blew it, but Jesus came. And, and you can have it too. I just want you to know. One of the things I love about introducing Jesus is it does that. But we are going to be needing to share the gospel ourselves as well. And we struggle with various temptations then, don't we? At least I know I do. The temptation towards the fear of man. Anybody else struggle with that? Seems like a great idea on a Sunday morning. Until I see my friend on Tuesday morning. And then they seem pretty big and pretty daunting. And it's hard. And I've forgotten everything that Dave told me on Sunday. Everything. And I clearly have got a tongue infection because it feels very large. I can't get it to move properly around people. You know what I'm saying? Or the temptation towards busyness. You think, listen, I'm, I'm for this. I need to do it. But right now, I've just got other things on. But I'll get to it. It's really important. Totally. I'm totally sold out for this. 
I just got a lot on. Just let me get through this next season. Do you like the way we talk in seasons? But a season brings another season, and a season brings another season. The temptation towards busyness and the temptation to functional immortality. None of us think we're going to live forever. None of us. But sometimes we live on the mission field as if we think everybody else is. I'll get to them down the track. Just busy right now, but hey, I'm coming back. These temptations are all lies. And they're temptations if we're serious about winning people to Christ that we must overcome. We must overcome them. If we're going to see people go from death to life, from darkness to light, from blind to seeing, we have to overcome these and present the gospel to people. And so if we're tempted towards the fear of man, listen, I get that because you and me are alike in that. But we must remember the same God that said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all I've commanded you, goes on to say, and behold, I am with you always. I'm with you till the end of the age. We've got to understand that. When we're looking out at the beach and at the sea, we can't just say, God created this. This is amazing. And that same God is with me. That's amazing. Oh my, they just found out I came to church. This is really embarrassing. We've got to allow the reality that the God created these. He's living in our heart. So I'm going to go on faith and talk to them because he will strengthen me. He will help me. Lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. That was the power that Paul drew on. He's not a superstar. He's not this unique individual. He has a unique place in Scripture, but at bottom line, he's just a guy like us. But he took on the gospel challenge and believed, God is with me, so I'm going to proclaim it. And I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to stand on it. Well, we're tempted towards the fear of man. We need to stand on the truth that God himself is with us. Jesus is with us. When we're tempted towards thinking we're too busy. Listen, we are all busy, okay? We are. Everybody is super busy. Fact. But here's another fact. Everybody is also making those decisions with busyness. And within the midst of the busyness, we're picking to do things that we feel are significantly important. That's why we're busy. I've got to do this. 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 Oh my, I'm so busy. Well, they're all your choices, right? They're all the things that we've picked to do. Busyness is an excuse. And if we're tempted towards being too busy for mission, we've got to take a step back and wonder then, what exactly is it that we're doing that is more busy than seeking to rescue people from hell? What was it? Well, you know, we just, we're really in the season of wanting to take the kids out for bike rides. Right. Could you shorten your rides so that you can get to people that don't know Jesus? Well, we've just got to do all these things in our life. They're just really important. Okay. But what about your family member that's going to hell and that time is running out for? Where are they fitting into your important strategy? Your mindset. This temptation to immortality, I think, plays in on that as well. We think, or at least live, as if we're going to, we've just got plenty of time. James addresses that directly. In James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, he's talking to us. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I mean, if that isn't an apostolic slapdown, then nothing is, isn't it? Okay, so talk to me. You, th- this is what you're doing next week? Oh, that's great. Who says? Who says you're going to live that long? You know what you are in your life? Now, let me think. What's my analogy? Oh, I know. You're like a piece of mist in the morning. And then the sun comes up and by 8 o'clock it's gone. He's trying to bring us to our senses. You think you've got all the time in the world? You'll just get onto it later? Maybe there won't be a later for you. Or maybe that person that you've been putting off telling the gospel to for weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe this is the last week of their lives. My friends, we need to be urgent in our mission. C.H. Spurgeon says it best. 
It says most things best. It says if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they would perish, then let them do so with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, then let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Oh, how challenging that is, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think we live such busy lives, we have so many things going on in our lives, that we get to church, we think about mission, and we're just like, I'm just so tired, I've just got so much stuff on, and I'm not saying we haven't. There is so much going on. But here's the reality. The people in our world are going to hell. Should we not be tired then as Christians, having agreed to become a Christian and endured then and understood that being a Christian is taking up our cross and following Jesus, would it not then correspond that we go to bed at night tired, having given our exertions to following Jesus Christ? Christianity never promised to be a comfortable little family. Isn't this nice? All my needs are being met. Never. Christianity promised to be an adventure of mission that would be hard and difficult, but we run the race together. We stand together. We go on mission together. The people in the heavenly realms, the cloud of witnesses, are looking on and cheering and spurring us on, and we all run together for the glory of the Lord until the day we stand there by ourselves and by His grace receive our well done. That's what I believe Christianity is. Not a comfortable little, this is nice. Our friends, if we want to win souls, we need to care enough to go across the room to people. And if we're going to win souls, we need to overcome all temptations of busyness and fear of man and the temptation to think we're going to live together. We've got to get on it with urgency and proclaim. Because it's only the gospel that has the power to save. That's it. Only the gospel. The soul winner knows that. That's why Paul is proclaiming, and finally, quickly, in closing, number three, the soul winner wins. I love this. Look at verse 32. Look at the effect of the way Paul was living. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabogite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Did you see what happened? So some responded with mockery. They think Paul's a fool. I can't believe you think this. It's crazy. Others responded with indifference. When they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'll probably hear you get about this, it's, it's quite dismissive. It's like, yeah, yeah, thanks. But some, the incredible news of verse 34, some believed. Some got saved. Some put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some people had their eternal destination in Athens in this moment, completely transformed as they went from death to life. Some people had their lives completely transformed. What a thrill that must have been for Paul as he realizes yet again, I've been an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. I've had the privilege of being the ambassador of Jesus Christ in this situation. I've had the joy of being mocked. I've had the joy of having these people stand in disdainment. But I've also had the joy of seeing this man and this woman and these others come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is so worth it. What a joy. And what a thrill for the soul winner to know that they're going to win. Don't you think? You're going to get mocked. You're going to have some being real indifferent. But you're going to have some. You're going to have the privilege of helping reintroduce to God the Father as their Lord and Savior. You know, one of the big stories in the UK in 2007 was the story of Madeline McCann. And I'm sure that story got over here as well. The four-year-old girl who was taken from her bedroom in um, the Algarve on the 3rd of May 2007. And it was plastered. It was on the news for weeks and months. Find Madeline, find Madeline. There are pictures of her everywhere. And everybody as the nation genuinely felt, for we've got to find this girl. And so there was lots of times where people had seen her, thought they'd seen her, maybe she's with this guy, and they, they were false reports. It just, they weren't, she wasn't actually Madeline. And she's still not been found. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder what it'd be like if you actually found Madeline. 
Imagine you actually found her. I, I found her. And imagine the joy it would be to take her to her mum and dad, to take her to the ones that are still weeping for her, or still praying that she will come back. Imagine the joy you would have of taking Madeline and saying, this is your daughter. And imagine the joy it would be to reintroduce Madeline to her mum and dad, the couple who made her, the couple that want to be with her, the couple that love her distinctly. Well, I believe the Apostle Paul feels exactly like that when it comes to mission. He walks into a city and he sees people that are lost everywhere. And then as some people get saved... It is the biggest thrill and buzz of his life as he realizes, let me reintroduce you then to the Father who made you. Let me return you to the one who even now is waiting at the gates with arms open wide to run to you and be with you again. Imagine the joy of Paul as he realizes, God, how kind you are to use me, to help me play a part in their story where they go from death to life, from darkness to light, from lost to found. That's what kept him going. Maybe there's at least one. Maybe there's one that I could help find, that I could help return to Jesus. So I'm going to be all things to all men so that by all means I may win some. I'll take any. My friends, I think that's how Paul felt about winning the lost. And the truth is that's the opportunity that awaits us too. We won't just be mocked. We won't just have people respond to us indifferently, though they will. Some will get saved. Some will go from darkness to light. Some will go from being lost to found. And what an opportunity that is, is it not? My friends, whatever the people, whatever the city, the gospel has the power to save. And so would I encourage you, would we be a people then that care that are willing to slow our lives down enough to walk across the room to people who don't know him? And in our caring, would we be willing to proclaim, to tell them about a story that could change their lives? And would we be a people then that win? Would that be our story at Sovereign Grace this year? Amen? Would we be soul winners? So let's learn from Paul. Let's learn from him and apply for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that your desire and your heart is to win souls. We don't have to twist your arm when it comes to seeking to seek and save the lost. You demonstrated that by clothing yourself in flesh and coming after the lost. And so, Lord, now as your people, now as your ambassadors, as your disciples, strengthened by your word, Would we cry out to you afresh that you may help us? And then would we go? Would we brandish the gospel and take it forth? Would we not be tempted to make excuse after excuse after excuse? But with hearts that love people, would we go and tell them about Jesus? For how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen.